morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I am your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Thank you to the generous underwriters of Sharper Iron, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. And Luther Classical College, a college for Lutherans by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Wednesday, October 11th, we are studying Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16. In today's text, the author of Hebrews encourages the congregation to hold fast to the confession of truth and to draw near to God's throne of grace with confidence, all because we have Jesus as our great high priest. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, the Reverend Dr. Adam Philippeck. Pastor Philippeck serves at Holy Cross and Emmanuel Lutheran Churches, both in Lidgerwood, North Dakota. Pastor Philippeck, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Thanks, Pastor Apple. Good to be with you. And as always, and to our listeners, greetings and welcome in the name of our crucified, risen, reigning Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who was, who is, and who is to come. Pastor Philippeck, we have the end of Hebrews chapter 4 today. What should we know about the epistle as a whole and the context leading up to this section? This is sort of the turning point, an introduction to the epistle. This is the capstone of chapters 1 through 4, and also we are now turning to the content of the rest of the epistle, sort of that divine service, God's voice and presence here with us while we are still here on earth, and Christ has ascended to the Father's right hand to be our high priest and our intercessor. So with that in mind, this section serves as kind of a nice capstone and turning point at the same time. And in chapter 4, we had been arguing up into this point about entering into God's rest. We'd spent a great deal of talking about rest, and that was important because the Israelites did not have rest. They were in slavery in Egypt. They were wandering in the wilderness. They had been promised a great rest where God would dwell with his people in the promised land where he would be present with them. And so the preacher, and I I say preacher here because I, I don't know that this is an actual letter to the church. I tend to take this more as a sermon, and I think, uh, just following the older tradition on this one, I like to think that this is Paul, who is is the author of this here. So I, I take this because kind of that sermon by Paul, and he's warning the congregations about Israelites who had heard God speak about who he was, who heard his confession, that truth. And I should say what can kind of confession is, because when you say confession, you think two different things sometimes. Confession just means to speak the truth. And so in the church, we have a way of confessing. We confess our faith in the words of the apostles, the Nicene Constantinopolitan, the Athanasian Creed, whatever the case may be. And when we say that, we just mean we say the truth about God, what he has told us and revealed to us in Holy Scriptures in the person and work of Jesus. There's also the confession of sins. I say the truth about myself. I, a poor, miserable sinner. If I say I have no sin in me, well, then I'm a liar, right? The truth is not in me. But if I confess my sins, God who is faithful and just. So when we're talking about confession, we're talking about what God has said about himself in his 
holy word. Hold fast to that because, you know, Israel didn't. They didn't. They grumbled. They wandered in the wilderness, and they didn't hold fast. So there were some in Israel who never entered into that promised land. They never entered into that rest. And so Paul seems to be exhorting them then of striving to enter that rest in verse 11. Strive to enter that rest. So the question then that that comes to us this morning, the question that confronts both the hearers and us today, are kind of this question at the start of our study of, how do I enter into God's rest? How do I strive to make sure that I enter into that eternal rest? And that's sort of the start of this all. So, Pastor Philippek, one of the things that, when I think about this particular section of Hebrews chapter 4, just these three verses which we get to study, we use the three-year lectionary in both congregations that I've served, and this text, along with the section in Hebrews chapter 5, comes up every year on Good Friday as the epistle reading. So just from the outset, how does how does that liturgical context help us to, to think about this text? Well, in the context of the three-year lectionary on Good Friday— what that helps frame us around our minds and, and visually is that we see the most pointed work of what it means to be high priest in light of Good Friday. And that's what I would say, what words are on the page are brought to life vividly in the liturgical setting where you see the cross, where you see it veiled, where you see Jesus suspended in between heaven and earth, where you hear him cry out all of the seven words of the cross, even crying out, it is finished, that work of God. And in the context of that, you also have on on Good Friday that um, stricken, smitten, and afflicted language of Isaiah 52 and 53, the suffering servant. So when you see that, you give it a, a pointed image of what it means to be a high priest is there being suspended between heaven and earth, the blood being painted on the doorposts and on the lintels, the whole Passover narrative, Israel, the suffering servant of Jesus, the sacrifice of the Lamb, all of those things that are being read on Good Friday actually come to fruition very visually and poignantly in the service, especially if you're doing like the chief service, or even the service of tenebrae, right, where the darkness and things like that, you're, you're getting to enter into, into that and see that very vividly, that what it means to, high, to be a high priest is intimately connected to, intertwined, and entangled in the cross. Hmm. So as we see Jesus crucified for us, we see him acting as our high priest, and, and as we think about then Good Friday, that's what's going to help us to hold fast our confession. That's what's going to give us this confidence to draw near to the throne of grace that we're going to see here today. One more question by way of introduction. You know, you've, you've got your book, Life in Christ, Rooted, Woven, and Grafted in a God's Story, in which you kind of run all the way from Genesis to Revelation with various themes— what are some of those themes of biblical theology that we just need to be aware of as we look at this text? I know we're going to dig into them in depth, but by way of preview, what are some of those you know, overarching scriptural themes that show up in this text? 
Absolutely. So the the book primarily looks at everything through the dominant theme of the presence of God, God being with his presence and having had lost that presence all the way back in the garden. So the, the big question of the Old Testament, where is this promised child who comes to crush the head of the serpent and give us back the presence of God? And the presence of God is tied intimately to the promised land. So one of the first things you talk about is that promised land and entering into rest. Well, you weren't quite there yet in Hebrews, and you weren't quite on that aspect here in the Old Testament. In fact, when all of this is coming to, it, uh, to fruition, you've got the 400 years of slavery. You've got Exodus in the Passover narrative, the sacrificial lamb um, who, whose blood is painted on the doorposts and on the lintels that they pass over from death to life. And the purpose of that is to set them free from their slavery that they might actually continue the journey to enter into the rest of the promised land. But along the journey, in, there is God who has not been with them forever um, since the beginning. Um, uh, he was there, but he, they've lost that presence since right after the beginning with the fallen of sin. Well, God no longer is making appearances like he appeared to Abraham. Now, as they travel, God is tying his presence to his people in that pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night, right? So you have all that wonderful stuff of evening prayer and all that, but then God comes to Sinai, and yeah, you have the Ten Commandments, but there's the visible... Um, concrete reality of the tabernacle that comes into play here. And in the tabernacle, God journeying with his people toward that promised land, the Exodus aspect, God's presence dwelling with them. But at the end of Exodus, it's so much that not even Moses can enter into that tabernacle when the glory cloud comes from Sinai to rest down in there where God is going to dwell in that tabernacle in the holy of holies or the most holy place in the holy place. Well, then you have the the bringing about of the Levitical priesthood, and you have Aaron and the high priests and all the sacrifices, the daily sacrifices that they were going to have to offer. You have the yearly sacrifice where Aaron, the high priest, has to go through this veil that no one else is able to enter into. Only the high priest can enter into that one time a year to make atonement, to cleanse the temple uh, eventually hear the tabernacle um, from their sins so that all the sin that is surrounding the tabernacle can be cleansed and God can continue to dwell with his people on that journey. So a lot of that language of God's presence and access to God through the veil and the tabernacle and the curtain and the, the sacrificial lambs and the high priest, all of that presence of God as they wander to that promised land. For us, uh, here and now, and for the author of, of Hebrews, the preacher, he connects that to the journey, which we'll see that we're still on until that great and glorious day when by the sound of the trumpet, God full, calls us out of the darkness into the marvelous light of salvation. And we are face to face with God in his presence forever, eyeball to eyeball, no more sin, no more suffering, no more death. So the author of Hebrews is talking about our own journey that resembles what the people of God were doing along the way in the promised land. And a high priest, the sacrifices, the lands, all that's a big part of it. All right. So with that introduction, let's hear the word of God from Hebrews chapter 4. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. 
Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That is our text for today. That's Hebrews 4, verses 14 to 16. So the author here in verse 14 starts off identifying Jesus, the Son of God, as the great high priest who has passed through the heavens. There's a lot to unpack there. Pastor Philippek, help us out. Yeah, so we start with what I would say uh, Colossians deals with a shadow of something. Like you have a shadow on the wall, the high priest, you can see what it is, but there's a greater reality. Like if I look at a shadow on the wall, I can tell like, oh, that's a man and things like that. And all, But I can't see the fullness of the person itself. And so that's what we get the, with the high priest. He goes back and says, hey, you remember the whole high priestly language? You remember everything that I did for my people of old? And the, and the uh, author recalls all of those things. He recalls the Levitical aspect of, of 4 and 16, you know, Levitical, Leviticus 4 and 16, where the high priest is instituted. And that year uh, or that yearly day of atonement, that high priest, initially Aaron, and later on others, his successors who would enter into that holy place that we talked about to atone for the priest's own sins— through, with the blood of a bull, and the congregation's own sins, with goat, lamb sort of stuff, all that good stuff. And that they had to dress a certain way. All of their, all of the, the different plates, the 12 tribes in the place, they had to have a bell tied around their ankle. You know, if you, if you do something wrong, you were struck dead, right? So, you know, if the bells ringing were okay, but they would take a, a hyssop plant and they would begin to Start with the mercy seat and where God dwelled with the people, the Ark of the Covenant that was behind the veil, and they would start with seven times sprinkling on the horns of the altar and working their way out. And this was the way that they were, uh, that God was cleansing the temple through this sacrificial blood. And they would begin to remove the sin cleansing this. And they'd move out to the holy place with the altar of incense and the, the bread of presence and all of that good stuff. And they would sprinkle the blood seven times on the veil. That was the curtain that separated God from his people, even God from the priest, because only the priest could enter into the holy place. But in that holy of holies, that most holy place, only the high priest could enter. So he'd, he'd sprinkle the blood on the veil and he continued to work his way out and finally, he got out to the courtyard, and the high priest would then lay, after sprinkling the blood of the lamb and goat on the people and the bull, he would lay his hands on the second goat, which we love to use in our modern-day language, too. We call, it, uh, we call it the scapegoat, right? He's the one uh, that I'm going to just—he's the whipping boy. He gets everything, all the trouble and all that. So they would lay the hands on the head of the second goat, have Israel's— sins confessed over it every year, and then it was sent out into the wilderness to die, never to return. And this was an annual thing so that all of Israel's sin was removed from them. The tabernacle was cleansed from its uncleanness that it had incurred while dwelling in the midst of sinful Israel. Well, that whole thing the preacher uses to say this, remember this image of high priest? We have a great high priest, and what we mean by great is one, and we'll, we'll get this in vif, verse 15, but one who does not sin. He doesn't need a bull. He doesn't need a goat. He doesn't need a lamb to cover his sins. 
No, he himself can actually stand perfected in glory in the Father's presence and not die. Where a priest or any other person, a sinner cannot stand in the presence of God and live, and so they have to be cleansed of that sin. We have a great high priest, all this whole sacrificial language, who has passed through the heavens. And who's this great high priest's name? It's not Melchizedek. It's not Aaron, and it's not any of the su successors, including Eleazar of Damascus, <laughs> uh, to go back. Well, oh, one of these own will be my own heir for Abraham's thing, you know, to go all the way, all the way back, uh, Melchizedek era and things like that. No, it is Jesus, the Son of God Himself. So this high priestly language sets before our eyes that we have a great high priest, Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus is the one who offered himself as a sacrifice. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, that's Jesus. But the high priest offers not a different lamb, he offers the most perfect lamb ever, thinking of Exodus language and tabernacle and temple stuff. He offers himself for the atonement of all sins of the world, to purify the world, to cleanse them from their sin, that God and his people might actually dwell together in unity, in presence, unveiled face to face. Well, this Jesus, who offered himself, ascended to the Father's side and is now making intercession for you by pleading that sacrifice, his bloodied sacrificial offering, which he made on the altar of the cross. He is holding that before the Father's eyes for you and for your benefit. No, Father, not this one. I died for this one. I suffered for this one. Father, forgive them. We saw that intercessory prayer of our great high priest on the altar of the cross. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And he has ascended in the, to heaven into the, he has slipped through the veil where only God can be accessed, that our great high priest remains in the flesh for us. And so the, his argument then is, you too get to slip through that veil in your own flesh. You get to see God. And it's this Jesus Christ who's having access, um, that gives you access to the Father. He's interceding for you. Right, and he is he is the Son of God. That's where the, the sermon, I think that's a good way to take this, that's where the sermon started, right? How has God spoken to you? Well, in days of old, many in various ways by the prophets, now through his son. So that's the one who is this great high priest. And again, thinking about the liturgical context of this showing up on Good Friday, where especially you're thinking about his work on the cross and the sacrifice that he offered there, yet at the same time, you don't ever separate that from the rest of Jesus' sacrificial work. So, I mean, you've you've already talked about all the way from his incarnation to his ascension, right. everything is involved in Christ being our great high priest there. Yeah, this is the this is the beauty of the work of Christ. I mean, the fact that he is incarnate literally means and risen from the dead and saying touch me and see a spirit doesn't have flesh and bones like you have literally means that the whole sum of Christianity is this beautiful reconciliation and this presence of God aspect, and it's only done through the cross. It's only done through cleansing the people and then rising from the dead to ascend to the Father. So you can kind of summarize it like this. God has joined you in the flesh. He's taken on a body so that you may join him in your flesh, in your body, in eternity. Yeah, yeah. And again, so once again, from the book of Hebrews, we get to talk about the importance of the ascension of Jesus, which is something I, I think we, we neglect, but we need to think about all the more often because there is such great comfort to, to know that the Son of God has ascended in our human flesh 
and we will be raised in our human flesh, perfected on the last day, a glorified, resurrected body just like his. Lots of good stuff here. So, as we've seen throughout this sermon, there are a number of places where the preacher says, let us. He exhorts his congregation. We've already encountered two in chapter four, and we get to encounter two more of those let us statements just in this short section, the first of which is let us hold fast our confession. So, Talk about what that means and, and why that follows from the fact that we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens. Why does that help us to hold fast the confession? Absolutely. So we recall how we started all of this, that this was sort of that hinge and transition from chapters one through the start of four. Well, here's where we see that aspect, because we were just talking about rest and striving to enter and how so many people failed to enter because they let go of God's word. They didn't hold fast to it. They didn't listen to him. They didn't listen to confession. And so to answer the question that we started with, how do I enter God's rest? The preacher comes back and says, here it is through Jesus, your high priest. Don't let this go this confession. And what confession? And so it's the whole summary of chapters 1 through the beginning of 4, that Jesus is the Son of God who was made a little lower than the angels, our great high priest who offered himself as the lamb of sacrifice on the cross and risen from the dead. He has been crowned with glory and honor, ascended to the Father's right hand to intercede for you. Don't let go of that. That's the only way you enter into rest. The devil cannot accuse you of anything anymore before God. He has been cast down, and you are holy, you are pure, you are cleansed from your sin. There is no condemnation for you now because of your high priest, Jesus Christ. Don't let go of that confession. There is no other way to enter into God's rest. Don't shrink back from it. Hold fast to this confession, and you will enter into the promise of eternal rest presence, the presence of God where there is no sorrow, no sin, no suffering, no death. Again, there's a number of reasons, I suppose, that we could think about scripturally that we would hold fast to our confession. There's any number of reasons why we would, we would encourage Christians, hold on to this. What is it particularly about having Jesus as our great high priest, as the one who's passed through the heavens? Why does that particularly, in this context, help us to hold fast to the confession? It is about confidence, it is about assurance, it is about standing before God and living with him in his kingdom forever. If you do not hold fast to Christ, if you do not believe Jesus to be the Son of God, our great high priest who offered himself as the lamb of sacrifice, smeared his blood on the doorposts and on the lintels of the cross, when that day comes, that day of judgment, and God returns what are you what are you going to say to him? Oh, I tried to live a good life. Really good? Let's talk about good. Let's talk about what good is. Be therefore perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Never commit a sin. How good have you actually been? And when you start going down that road on the day of the judgment of God, that will get you nowhere except I tell you I never knew you. And here's again the dominant theme of of presence that I that I talk about in in life in Christ. Depart from me you workers of iniquity into the fire prepared for the devil and his angels. It wasn't prepared for you, but you can end up there by not holding fast to this confession. Verses, come with me, 
come through this veil to my side as Jesus ascended in the flesh, so now shall you ascend in your flesh to live with God face to face. There is no other way to do this. So there's the confidence on the day of judgment, but I think even right now and here as we dwell on earth, like the devil loves to come to us, right? Even on our deathbed. Oh, not to cause you any trouble or anything. I know you're, a, a, well, you said you're a child of God. Yeah, when did that happen? Oh, I made that confession. I believed in Jesus. I'd follow him all the days of my life. I stood up and said that Jesus is Lord. You know, and then it's all oh, not to cause you any trouble or anything. I remember that day. Uh, wasn't it when you went to a meeting on, you know, college campus and all, yes, yes, and I heard, uh, uh, oh, not to cause you any trouble, anything, but weren't you there because you really liked that woman? Okay, that may be where I went there, but, well, I was there, sincere confession happened. Oh, sincere, kind of like when you told your parents you'd, you'd take out the garbage and you sat on your, your duff, your lazy duff, and didn't do anything. Uh, come to think of it, how sincere are you? And all of a sudden, the devil's throwing these sins in your face. And if it's about you, if it's about what you have done, how I've accepted Jesus, how I whatever live my life, then you have no confidence because at the end of it, the devil can say, really? So, so it looks like you're not really a Christian to me, does it? Not by well, what I look in your confession. When I, when I see in your life, it looks like you look more of a child of mine than a child of God's. But if we hold fast to this confession, we can get to say to the devil, you're right. I admit it. I confess. I deserve everything I get. I deserve death and hell. But what of it? I have a great high priest who has offered himself on the cross as the lamb of sacrifice. He has marked me with that cross. And about me, he has said, I baptize you. You are my child, so get behind me, Satan. I know exactly what's going on. I know exactly where I'm going. My high priest has confessed his name, my name before my father in heaven. Father, forgive them. And so it is. I am forgiven. It's confidence. It's standing in God's presence. Absolutely. And again, that's where the writer of Hebrews, the preacher of the sermon, is going to take us as we get to another let us statement before the end of this section. But we will pick up more of that on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. We're talking to Pastor Adam Philippeck this morning about the end of Hebrews chapter 4. We will be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that an investment with Lutheran Church Extension Fund exclusively supports LCMS ministries and church workers? That's right. LCEF ensures LCMS churches, schools, and organizations have access to the financial resources they need to sustain, strengthen, and start ministry work. In other words, you can feel good investing with LCEF because we share your Lutheran values and love for the church. Learn more at lcef.org. LCF is a nonprofit religious organization. Therefore, LCF investments are not FDIC insured bank deposit accounts. This is not an offer to sell investments or solicitation to buy. LCF will offer and sell its securities only in states where authorized. The offer is made solely by LCF's offering circular. Investors should carefully read the offering circular, which more fully describes associated risks. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Wednesday, October 11th. We're studying Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16, with the Reverend Dr. Adam Philippek. He serves at Holy Cross and Emmanuel Lutheran Churches, both in Lidgerwood, North Dakota. And also the author of the book, remind me the, the title of the book, Pastor Philippek, we referenced it a couple times. Life in Christ, Rooted, Woven, and Grafted into God's Story. 
Yes, and that is available to you from Concordia Publishing House, the publishing arm of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. And I'm sure we will reference a few things from that book as our conversation continues. So, Pastor Philippe, we left off in verse 15. The preacher of the sermon has said, let us hold fast our confession. Now he continues to say why. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. How does he continue to speak about Jesus as our high priest and why it's important for us? Let me hang a hat on a hook from our catechism, right, to give you a reference. And I would say that this deals most poignantly with the two natures of Jesus— He is God, and he is man at the same time. And the reason that matters is because the ones who have been going behind the veil are men. They are among you. They have been chosen by God, and you yourself, they have been set in place, but they have been from among you. And so they know, right? They know your daily life. They know your ins and outs. But knowing your ins and outs, they've also known your struggles And not just the sorrows that you've had and the joys, but they have fallen into sin. They have been tempted, and that's why they too, when they go behind the curtain, need to offer the blood of a bull for them. Because they're among you, and not just among you, they're they're an unclean sinner. And so God is graciously allowing them to enter into the veil to cleanse that. So we have this first aspect. We have one who, in every respect, has been tempted as we are. This is the preacher saying, look, he is from among you. This is the incarnation. He knows what it is to live in a world of sorrow and suffering and death, feeling like you're wandering through the wilderness of sin, crying out, God, where are you in the midst of this? Have you forgotten me? Have you forsaken me? This is the one who wept outside of Lazarus's tomb when he came face to face with death. This is the one who lamented, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I have longed to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you would not. He sees the sorrows, he's with you in the sorrow, and he's even been tempted to sin. And so we are cast back in the first part of the ministry. What happens after Jesus' baptism? It's the start of Lent, baby, (laughs) right? And this is why this beautiful aspect of the liturgical setting of Good Friday, it's the culmination of everything, right? In Lent, you start with a temptation, And that's what you look at, 40 days of the wandering in the wilderness of sin, the season of Lent on Ash Wednesday. And so you have a priest who has been tempted. So he recalls the temptation. I'm going to go with Matthew chapter 4 on this one. And he has been tempted like all who have gone before you. Adam, how was Adam tempted? By food. How was Israel tempted? By food. Oh, that we would go back to Egypt and lung, the groaning, right? Oh, that we had it somewhere. Never mind that you were 400 years in slavery with whips and brick. Okay, you had it better there. Great. <laughs> you know, you get this weird, like, okay, you're groaning in the midst of this. Israel was unfaithful. Adam was unfaithful. Jesus' first temptation is with food. 40 days, just like they'd been wandering 40, day, 40 years in the wilderness. Well, the punishment, 40 years came from spying out the promised land for 40 days and disobeying God's, not holding fast to his word, to go up and take possession, and so they got one year for every day they disobeyed. So that 40, that temptation, that wilderness, that Old Testament narrative all comes into play here. And what's being said is Adam failed. Israel failed. They were tempted, and Jesus faces that first temptation. 
of food, starving, hungry. But he says, no, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word from the mouth of God. And then the temptation heightens. He takes him to the pinnacle of the temple and says, throw yourself down. And he uses God's word. The devil's a liar. He doesn't have any truth in him. He's the father of lies. So he takes something that sounds true, the Psalm 95, and he twists it. It is throw yourself down. It is written, he'll command his angels concerning you. He twists it because that's not about doing something stupid, like just jumping whenever, whatever. It's about God actually being present with you and taking care of you when your enemies are pressing in on you and pressing down on you. That's the context. And to that, he says, oh, he will command his angels concerning you. Uh, And so all these things. So Jesus has to say, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And then the third temptation strikes at the heart of his high priest his sacrifice. He takes him and shows him all the kingdoms of the world in time. We have been enslaved to sin. First John talks about this. The one who commits a sin is a slave to sin. Paul talks about this in Romans 6. We are enslaved to sin. And so he says, all of this I will give you. I'll give all the people back. I know why the Father sent you. He sent you to get these people. And I'll tell you what, you can have all these people. I'll give them all to you right now. If you fall down and worship me. See, you don't have to go to the cross. You don't have to suffer. You don't have to offer yourself. You know, the, the father gets what he wants. You don't have to suffer. And you know, I just get what I want. I get you to worship me, right? And so the temptation is, much like Adam, to be God, to take matters into his own hands and all that. And he says, be gone, Satan. It is written. And he holds fast to the confession of the father. For God so loved the world that he sent. He gave his one and only son. And Jesus was obedient unto death, even death upon the cross. So what you need to see here is he's like you. Even down to sin, he's been tempted. He's like you in every way, human being among you who enters into your suffering, who knows your sorrows, and yet he is not like you in this. He is without sin. That son of God in the flesh has conquered your enemies. He has resisted Satan. Where Israel of old and Adam were faithless, This is the true Israel. Israel reduced to one. He has remained faithful unto death. Hmm. You know, that that aspect that Jesus has remained faithful unto death, that he is the the champion over the devil, over our sin, I think we do a a pretty good job of holding on to that. You know, you mentioned the beginning of Lent with the temptation of Jesus, and we we sing a mighty fortress that that Jesus is the one who holds the field forever. I think we do a good job of holding on to that. Sometimes I I wonder if, if perhaps, though, we maybe don't hold on quite as well to the other aspect that Jesus has been made like us in every respect, which is is was brought up earlier in Hebrews chapter two, and I think is certainly in the background here. Why is why is that also important that we see the as you said, the two natures in Christ. Why is it important that we hold on to that full humanity that Christ has just as much as as he has the full divinity? This is the beautiful aspect of comfort and hope that we have in the incarnation. You do not have a God who creates the world, sits back, looks down and says, oh, you sin, stinks to be you, and walks away from you. Every moment of every hour, every day, even in the womb, where you first begin, our God knows what that is like. Our God knows what it's like to be dependent upon his mother and father for food and for care. Our God knows what it is like to, to suffer. Whips tore at his flesh, thorns. Our God knows what it is to have people stretch out his hands and do something that he lets them do, but knows what it is. Our God knows what it is to die. No 
aspect of your life is unredeemed by God, every moment of every hour of every day, your God sees and your God intimately knows your suffering. And it is for this moment, for this reason, for your sufferings that he entered into the flesh, that your life might not end in suffering, might not end in sorrow, might not end in sin, but you might end in your flesh, free from illness, disease, suffering, and death, that ascension Mm. language. Yeah, so that for that reason, we are able to hold fast to our confession. That was the first let us statement in this section. And then the, the preacher comes with another let us statement. This is now in verse 16. So because this is who Christ is, he is our high priest who sympathizes with us in our weaknesses and is like us with in every way except he's without sin, so he's the perfect great high priest. Now then, let us with confidence draw near to the throne of of grace. Take us into this next exhortation from our section today. Absolutely. So this confidence language we have already talked when we a little bit about with baptism and things like that, and the difference of me standing before God on that great day versus me standing clothed in a robe of Christ's righteousness that covers all my sin. So that confidence aspect, this is what we see back in Ephesians and other places, that you who were once far off, Back in the garden, you were separated from God. He kicked you out. I mean, this is, again, that dominant theme that we, we've we been talking about with life in Christ, uh, rooted, woven, and grafted into God's story in my book there. You are far off from God, but God has brought you near. He has reconciled you. He has reconciled you through the blood of Christ. He has made peace. A sinner can't stand in the presence of God and, and lives, and so he's got to cleanse you of your sin, that you may stand boldly and confidence that you may draw near. This was Israel's problem. On the Mount of Sinai, they drew near, and all of a sudden, they heard God in thunder and smoke, not even eyeball to eyeball, and they're, they're freaking out, like, no, send a mediator, Moses, you speak for us, right? I mean, a sinner can't spend, stand in the presence of God and live. But yet, in Christ, that dividing wall of hostility, that separation, that curtain, that separated God from his people in the tabernacle, in the temple. It is torn in two from top to bottom the moment that Christ dies. And so you have access to God. Through him, you have access in one spirit to the Father. So by the spirit, through the Son, you have access now to the Father. And so Hebrews 10 talks a lot about this, right? You can enter that confidently, enter into that place of your Father, not in judgment, but rather through the blood of Jesus. You can draw near to him. You can call him to make this very easy, our Father. You can do that. You can call him that without fear of God judging you or anything else like that. And he's going to spend a lot of time, the preacher is in 9, 10, 11, and 12, about this drawing near. And I think the biggest thing is to start with is beyond the confidence is that that little word that you said, those two little phrases, let us. You know, oftentimes Christianity, uh, we reduce things. It's just me and God. It's me and Jesus. And, you know, this is the, the whole chapter one of life in Christ here is that, no, it's, it's not you and Jesus. You can't strip out everyone else on the story and put yourself at the center. You're not at the center. Christ is at the center, and he does this not just for you and for the world. So the let us means that this is a communal drawing near. It's not just you coming near to God. It's the whole body of Christ drawing together collectively in the gathering, the assembly together, which he Hebrews 12, we'll talk about the assembly of the firstborn in heaven. There, the worship, the divine service that's going on in heaven, you get to participate on here on earth. Yes, that divine service, you're you're meeting together, you know, don't neglect that. Don't neglect going to church. Don't neglect assembling together. Let us draw near. You know, some are in the habit of doing that, but don't. 
because it will mean your death, not your life. Draw near through Jesus. And when that day approaches, well, you will see him him face to face. So by that spirit of Christ, you now enter into God's presence through Jesus, that mediator, that high priest. You get to draw near to the one true God in reverence and awe. And you get to hear him speak to you from heaven, though you are yourself planted, your feet planted firmly right now on earth. You brought up the Lord's Prayer and the introduction particularly, Our Father, which even in that language, sometimes we forget you have the communal aspect. He's not just my Father or your Father, but he is our Father. And of course, Luther in his explanation brings up the boldness and confidence that we as dear children can approach our dear Father. Talk talk more about that thought of boldness and confidence that's there in the Lord's Prayer and prayer in general as we approach God's throne of grace. Absolutely. You do not have to fear entering into God's presence at all. And you see this in the start of the of the service on a Sunday morning, right? You don't fear entering into God's presence. Why? How does the service begin? In the language of baptism, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. You stand confidently and firmly, rooted, woven, and grafted into God's story, into Christ himself, and you have access, which you have never had, to the Father. You can draw near to him. He wants to hear from you. You can ask him, dear Father, I need, and all the prayers and petitions. You don't have to fear that God's going to somehow say, oh, not in your sin. I'm not. When you stretch out your hands, I'm not going to listen to you. He only says that to people who don't hold fast to the confession. But if you enter into God's presence through the blood of Jesus, by the spirit of the living God himself, then you have nothing to fear. God wants to hear from you. He tenderly invites you to call upon him, to cast your cares upon him, and he will sustain you. And not just you, but every other person that you bring in your life that have you've been connected through week by week in the divine service. When you come, you bring the world with you. Your little world comes before the Father, and all of a sudden, my friend so-and-so who's suffering with cancer, my, my, my daughter who has just had a child, my, you're bringing the world by the Spirit through the Son to the Father in prayer, that from the Father through the Son by the Spirit, they too, like you, might receive life. So this intercession is by the Spirit through the Father, and he tenderly invites you to just come before him. He wants to hear from you, as a father wants to hear from his child. Now, again, thinking about being drawn into the presence of God and going into his presence with confidence, as the writer says here, and thinking about just the, the overarching theme, as you've got in, in the scriptures, of being in God's presence, as I'm thinking through this just off the top of my head right now, there's a number of ways that the scriptures talk about what it means to be in the presence of God. And one that comes to my mind right away when it comes to the themes in the scriptures is the thought of eating with God. So you've got you've got that present in the Garden of Eden, you've got it present in the new creation, you've got it present at Mount Sinai and the Lord's Supper. So that, that's one way. Uh, the way that the writer here talks about it is that we get to draw into God's presence, that's approaching the throne of God's grace. So we're approaching him as a king. So, so talk about, and maybe that connects to the Lord's Prayer too, our Father who art in heaven. He's the one who's in heaven. He's the king. So we approach God as a king with confidence. Talk about the, that, that he's the king as we approach him and, and the comfort and confidence that's there. All right, so this is the beautiful thing of it all, right? This is the whole argument of chapter 1, uh, the, the preacher in chapter 1, that he made him a little lower than the angels, but crowned him with glory and honor. That's kingly language, which means that, to put it quite um, familiarly, 
in Matthew 28, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Philippians, at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow on heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and confess that Jesus is Lord. Romans, he will put all things under his feet. Heaven and his throne and earth is his footstool language, right? So you get this whole imagery that you have not just a father, but a ruler of the entire world. There is nothing outside of his grasp. There is nothing that he doesn't give to not just you as a father, but to the world. Everything was created by him. Everything is ruled by him. And even the enemies that went against him were made to be his. God used the devil as a dupe, right? He came at God with all his head. Ah, I get to crucify. I get to kill the son of God. And what does Jesus do? Well, he takes this instrument of death and behold, he makes it an instrument of life. He takes a, a barren place of mortality, like a tomb, and he makes it a fruitful place of immortality. Like there is nothing that, you know, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. He makes a, uh, he takes a donkey, right? No, 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 no. What? He rides a donkey. You ride a horse. You ride a chariot. That's the strength of man. He makes it his donkey. He takes his donkey and behold, he makes it a noble steed. You know, that's kind of how I, I talk about these different phrases in, in the book, but you know, he takes these little things and he rules and he reigns over all things, which means that even death itself must, must give up everyone who it holds under it. When he says, come out. The, the time is coming, Jesus says in John 5, when all who are in their graves will hear my voice and come out. So the question is not, is there life after death? Of course there is. The question is, where will I be? Those who believe in him to a resurrection of life, those who do not believe, those who do not hold fast to the confessions, those who do not do good to a resurrection of judgment. See, so this is this, is this whole thing. He even is Lord over death. To the devil, get behind me, Satan. The demons shudder at him. Like you and I think about demons and it's like, oh, we don't want to go. That's creepy. But it's not, you know, we get in the presence of a demon and we freak out. But when Jesus comes to the synagogue, it's like, what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Have you come to destroy us? I mean, this is his rule and reign. Sin, he comes near to sin and it says, I forgive you all your sins. And it is gone. He comes near to a creation that's trying to kill all of the other creation with waves crashing over a boat. And Jesus says, he's asleep initially. And then he's like, yeah, peace be still. And it listens to him. Yeah, well, and so all of this means that this one who is the king with all power, because he is the great high priest who has sympathized with us in our weaknesses, who has made the sacrifice of himself, that means that that what otherwise could be the place of the throne of power and the throne of fear is now the throne of grace, that we get to approach this king. And, and that's the I'm glad you brought up chapters one and two, where the writer talks about these things. The one who is the king is our brother. He he is ascended as our brother, and so we can approach the throne with confidence because it's a place of grace and mercy, not just a place of power and, and no longer a place that we have to come with fear, but we know that he sits there as our brother, as our high priest. And again, this is where that Good Friday context, coupled with the entire ministry of Jesus, all the way from incarnation to ascension and even to his coming return, provides great comfort to us so that, as, as the writer says, we can with confidence draw near to this throne of grace. We actually have access to the throne room. This is something that I I think maybe in our context, we don't fully appreciate because for us, it's it's kind of an American pastime even right. to make fun of our rulers. <laughs> right. like this is something that, that we just do, but it's not been that way throughout the, the world in the majority of its history. The throne room, the place of the ruler is a place that you better watch out because if you don't, you don't come there in the right frame of mind or if the king's mad at you, you're in trouble. But for us now as Christians, we can go into the throne room with 
confidence because that's a place of grace for us. And find the grace that we need in our time of need. So yeah. you're caught in the sin, you're plagued by sin and suffering. What happens? Oh, here's some grace. Upon this, your confession, I, by virtue of my office as a called and ordained servant of Christ, announce the grace of God unto you in the stead by the command of my Lord Jesus Christ. I forgive you all your sins. And you are. Oh, God, where are you in this? Have you forgotten me? Have you forsaken me? Boy, I've got a horrible week. I've got a terminal illness, and I feel so far from you, and I can't hear your voice. I wish you could just be present here and now. You want to hear my presence? Take and eat, take and drink. This is my body and blood. Here's, here's, uh, well, here's just to speak of Jesus's language. Here is the incarnation. Here is the conception. Here is the childhood, here is the ministry, here is Bethlehem, here is Golgotha, here is the ascension, here is time and eternity. Here in your, you can't get closer to God than when you can taste, touch, hear, see, and smell him. See, he uses your senses. You can encounter that. Here's your grace. I'm as near to you as that bread in your mouth and that taste of wine. That's my body and blood. That's how close I am to you. Oh, if I could only just uh, get back my loved one. With angels, archangels, and all the company of heaven, they're not gone. They live, even though they die. They are here with you in the divine service. Though you can't see them, though they are veiled, you are enrolled in the assembly of the firstborn, and you are you are worshiping God in heaven, though your feet are planted here and now. Well, to me in Lidgerwood, North Dakota, to you wherever. But this is the beautiful thing. Jesus ascending to the Father now is able to be present in all of these things where he has promised to be. So in his word and his sacrament, he just keeps giving you grace upon grace upon grace, forgiveness, life, and salvation over and over and over again for any time of need that you have. Everything that you prayed for in prayer, God says, here it is. Here's my body and blood for you. Yeah, so beautiful comfort. When we approach the throne of grace, we would receive mercy. We find that grace. It's not a question as to what we're going to receive there. We have the mercy and grace of God, and it's for our time of need. I think that's a particularly comforting statement, that this is for our time of need. Talk to us more about that. Yeah, this is the beauty of of what we were just talking about with your time of need, cancer, Parkinson's, tsunamis, hurricanes, earthquakes, the death of a loved one, the fear of going through any sort of pain or suffering. God has redeemed it all in Christ, and he is with you here and now in the divine service. The minute that sign of the cross is made in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, you join your voice with the assembly of the firstborn. Suddenly the walls of your, of your sanctuary melt away and you find yourself there in the assembly of the firstborn in heaven. You enter into God's grace and he gives you his word and his sacraments. You receive his mercy. You receive his presence. You dwell with God, your great high priest, and everything that he won for you 2,000 years ago on the cross is given to you in an instant, in a moment in time here. And that not only that not only forgives your sins and allows you to be in God's presence, but and you not only sing the Nectamidus, Lord, now let us thou thy servant, right? I can die a happy man. I've be, I've held that, that Savior Jesus in my hand. I can. But if you don't die, he sends you out of these doors to live your life in Christ. He will be with you. He will strengthen you. He will help you when you don't know how to get through it. He has engraved you on the palms of his hand. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. You doubt that. You need only look at the wounds of your Savior. You need only hear his words, receive his baptism, receive his very body and blood. It is strength for the day and the bright 
hope and certainty of the morrow, that great day when he comes again in glory. And thinking about this in the context of the sermon, what he's been saying so far, you know, this time of need, you think about the Israelites that he's brought up as the example, and look at how they didn't enter the rest. They didn't hear the word of faith. You know, as, as we were talking about from the, the outset, how do I enter this rest? I don't know if I'm going to get in. Well, guess what? You've got a high priest who's not out to exclude you. He doesn't want to exclude you. He is there to help you in your time of need. He wants to draw you close to him, to bring you into his presence that you would receive grace and mercy. You you are in great need right now. You need to be brought in. And your high priest, that is what he wants to do for you. He is there to draw you to himself, to bring you into his presence, into this throne room that you might receive mercy and grace. Pastor Philbeck, there's tons of stuff just in these three verses. We've got about three minutes left, and we probably only scratched the surface. Help us to wrap things up on the text this morning. You and I, like Israel, are left constantly facing the temptations and the sorrows and the sufferings of this world. We continue to wander in the wilderness of our own sin, waiting for that day, that day of glory when our Lord returns, he who is the resurrection and the life and wipes every tear from our eyes when we enter into that promised land where he actually gets to be our God and we his people face to face. No sin, no sorrow, no suffering, no death. We remain, though, still wandering, like Israel of old, waiting for that day. But we are not left without confidence. We are not left without hope. We have a high priest who knows our weakness, who knows our suffering, who knows everything that you are crying and groaning out to a God, wondering where are you in this. He has ascended to the Father's right hand to intercede for you, and it is from the Father that he speaks to you and draws you into the presence of God in the divine service that you may be brought to the Father, laying your request before him, having been cleansed of your sins, and God the Father might speak to you, the assembly of the firstborn, those enrolled in heaven, which now you're still on earth, we feebly struggle, but there are those who right now in glory shine, but yet all are one in Christ. And so all are gathered together, whether you are in Lidgerwood, whether you in Illinois, Godfrey, or wherever you might be, whether you are in the St. Louis area, whenever you enter into that sanctuary, through this Jesus, he draws you to the Father, that the Father might say, through the Son, by the Spirit, I forgive you, I am with you. This is my body. No, this doesn't end in sin or suffering and death. This ends with these simple words. Alleluia. Christ is risen. He has risen indeed. Alleluia. And as this Jesus has ascended in the flesh, the day is coming. Indeed, it is nearer now than when you first stepped door, foot in those doors of the sanctuary this morning, where I will return and take you to be with myself. In the meantime, I am with you always to the end of the age, and you may draw near to me and receive my presence and my grace, the fruits of Christ's cross, now in your time of need. The Reverend Dr. Adam Philippeck serves at Holy Cross and Emmanuel Lutheran Churches, both in Lidgerwood, North Dakota. He's also the author of the book, Life in Christ, Rooted, Woven, and Grafted into God's Story. He's been helping us today to study Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16. Pastor Philippeck, thanks for being our guest today. Thank you. 
I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have any questions about Hebrews chapter 4, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. It is always a pleasure to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow. Tomorrow.